0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. It is good to be with you. Uh, My name is Zach Lutz. If you do not know me, I am senior pastor here at Trinity Church. We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we will be in Luke chapter 13 today, although uh, the, this little line here says Luke uh, chapter 10. Uh, that, that's uh, my bad. Uh, I was pasting in the wrong verses in there. Uh, the verses themselves are correct. Uh, it's just the reference at the top there. So in case you're wondering, uh, we too make mistakes. So uh, if you make mistakes, don't feel uh, left out in that sense. We're, we're all together in that. Uh, one question I consistently find uh, time and time again as people ask to meet with me um, and have questions about their faith uh, is, is just that. Uh, how is my faith doing? Is it sound? Is it built on the right things? A lot of times people come uh, carefully, wanting to carefully analyze whether or not uh, their faith is enough. They feel that their faith is weak for some reasons. They feel uh, that they have let God down. Uh, I think I have felt these same things. You begin to wonder whether or not uh, I, I am resting in the right things, whether or not I am uh, believing in, in things that become a Christian, that are, that are right for a Christian to believe. And you know, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, at least in my own life, I find that this stems from a sort of acknowledgement of my own hypocrisy. Because I try to blind it from myself, I try to blind it from others, uh, I try to blind it from God. But I claim to live a certain life, and yet I know that I live something drastically different. And in that space in between what I say I want to live versus the things that I actually do, this, this uh, hypocrisy gap, I recognize that something is desperately lacking. And I wonder when the time comes and the sky rolls back and Judgment Day happens, will my faith be enough? Religious hypocrisy uh, is something that can be found uh, in in any place that there are humans. (laughs) Um, And a lot of times people charge Christianity with being hypocrisy in and of itself. It's marked by a bunch of people, everyone in this room, who claim to live a certain sort of life and say that they rest in a certain sort of thing, and yet they come together every week and confess their sins. (laughs) They confess the fact that they have actually broken it, that they aren't who they say that they should have been. Is Christianity a religion marked by hypocrisy, or is it marked by something else? Today we're going to, in our passage, see religious hypocrisy on full display. And how Jesus answers this religious hypocrite is going to teach us two things about how to avoid religious hypocrisy in our own lives. So, in order to not be religious hypocrites, we must learn that God's law is good, it is truly good for us. And we must also learn that participation in God's kingdom is a gift. So, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Luke chapter 13 starting in verse 10. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, "'Woman, you are freed from your disability.'" And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This ends the reading of God's word. It is God's law, and it is good and right to us. May we submit to it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So We're interested in not being religious hypocrites, Uh, and we're going to see Jesus correct this leader's uh, religious hypocrisy in two ways. He's got to correct his understanding of the law, of God's law, and he's got to correct his understanding of God's kingdom. So First, God's law. Um, Now, as a summary, I kind of want to give, just summarize this this story real quick in case we miss them. I think it's pretty obvious, uh, but just to kind of highlight it in other terms. Up to this point in Luke, Uh, Jesus has been preaching the good news and working miracles. But at the end of chapter 9, which we were in last week, it says that Jesus makes a turn. It says he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And in that moment, what Luke is trying to signify to us that Jesus is now uh, turning explicitly towards the work that he has to do to uh, seal this good news, to provide this good news, to the work that he's going to have to do on the cross. Now, he's also been ministering for some time at this point. And so from Luke chapter 9 until where we're at now, in Luke chapter 13, he comes in increasingly conflict with the religious leaders. Now, it could be uh, that they were tired of Jesus' teaching. Uh, It could be that maybe they were jealous that he was pulling larger crowds. Uh, It could be that they were just tired of his cult-like following infiltrating their synagogues on the Sabbath day. But they are challenging Jesus more and more. But what Luke chapter 9 reveals to us as Jesus turns his face is that uh, Jesus is also challenging those who are obscuring his gospel more and more. So for those that are taking the words of the Old Testament and trying to hide and distract away from the answer to the Old Testament. And so Jesus himself is... Uh, in some sense, embracing these opportunities to challenge these religious hypocrites. And this is one of those instances. You see, the synagogue leader knew the Old Testament better than any of us in this room, myself included. He knew the strong language of Ezekiel 20 that we just read a little bit earlier. Uh, he knew how strong the warnings were, were for the Sabbath. He knew God's law. Now, Jesus healing this woman was considered work, This was the accepted, understood interpretation of the Old Testament law in Jesus' day. And this leader thought that Jesus would be a fool to go against the accepted interpretation of the Old Testament law that was at play in the world. He thought that his interpretation was foolproof. He could exclaim it to the crowds, because if you notice in the story, he doesn't answer Jesus directly, right? He just sees Jesus do the action, and then he answers his own congregation, and he says, this is wrong. This should not have happened. And he was so confident in his interpretation because everybody else believed it with him. He thought his interpretation was foolproof because he thought that God's law were restrictions to be obeyed. But Jesus is about to show his hypocrisy Because the law of God is not simply about restrictions to be obeyed, but is also about to teach us the good things that God has for us. So Jesus continues, Who of you does not on the Sabbath untie his donkey and lead it to water? It's clear in the passage that the rhetorical question is not intended to be answered. Everyone led their donkey, which was bound, away to water to drink. And this was considered a mercy even on the Sabbath day, a mercy towards God's good creation. And so Jesus' interpretation continues, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from her burden even on the Sabbath? How much more valuable is a daughter of Abraham than a donkey? And how much more should the mercy be shown You see, God's law was not simply rules to be obeyed that didn't necessarily need to have any rhyme or reason. Jesus is interpreting to say, no, actually, the Sabbath day is to be obeyed because it is a day of liberation from our burdens. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But what we can see about this from from this religious leader is that he did not necessarily understand God's law as something that was supposed to be a blessing, but a burden that we were supposed to carry how do you take up your cross daily? Oh, we have to obey all these laws that God gives us. It's such a burden to carry. And Jesus is saying, no, these laws are not a burden. (laughs) My yoke is easy and my burden is light, says Jesus. This law is actually what you were made for. How can we learn to see that God's law is good for us? Well, what we have to understand is that we actually have to obey God's law in order to understand its goodness. Uh, There's there's just some things that Um, You can't quite fully understand until you do them. Like no matter how many videos I watch of having to repair my car uh, on YouTube, I'm so confident that I'm going to be able to fix um, this tie rod end, right? And then I get in there underneath the car and I can't do it. And I'm throwing tools all around the garage, right? No matter how much I think I might know, the lived experience doesn't help me solve the problem that's in front of me. And so similarly, God's law, in order to understand why it's good for you, you actually have to obey it. Your disobedience proves that you don't actually think it's good for you. You think something else is good for you. Does that make sense? We actually have to believe from the inside of ourselves that God's law is good for us. Now, we all break God's law. We just confessed our sins. We all know that uh, we fall short of the glory of God. And so you might reach this conclusion that says, well, since we can't live it, we can't know it. So why try? Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can't know what God's law is. He tells it to us. I am saying that our interpretation of it tends to be distracted. We tend to try to make it easier, lesser. In order to understand the goodness of God's law, we must go to the authoritative interpreter of God's law, and that is Jesus himself. You see, this religious leader thought he knew what the Sabbath day was. He thought it was explicitly clear from Ezekiel 20. And Jesus, the only one who actually lived God's law and obeyed it in every respect and so understood what was good and right to do on the Sabbath, could turn to him and say, you're missing the point. You untie your donkey and you would say that this woman shouldn't be loosed from the burden that binds her you don't understand the Sabbath because although I'm sure this religious leader walked around with a badge saying, I obey the Sabbath, he's like, you don't obey it. We can't understand the goodness of God's law. We have to go to the authoritative interpreter of it. Uh, But here's the deal about God's law. Uh, Theologians often talk about God's law in three uses. Maybe you've heard that there's three uses of God's law. I'm going to try to use this analogy. I I found it helpful. Uh, And that's that there's a floor and a ceiling to God's law. Uh, let me, let me start with this. I was actually told, uh, maybe last week or the week before, it was last week, last week in our, in our children's ministry room and they're, they're covering the 10 commandments. Uh, and I think one of the students in there, uh, and, and I'm, if you're in this room, I'm not trying I'm, it's a great answer, but they were like, well, do not murder is the easiest commandment to obey because on the face of it, it does. They're like, none of us are going to murder anybody. They're like, nobody's, nobody's murdered anyone, right? Like, that's, that's the easiest one. You know, not lying. Well, okay, you know. So this kid, in full honesty, right, is, is convinced that do not murder uh, is the easiest of the Ten Commandments to obey. But what does Jesus describe later? I tell you, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. See, God's law kind of works like this. There's a floor and there's a ceiling. The floor may be do not murder. And in between here and the ceiling, there's do not hate your brother or sister in Christ but to fulfill the law, to get past the ceiling. Have you heard of the summary of God's law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What would it look like to actually fulfill the eighth commandment? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Anything less than that is not fulfilling the law of God. And as we look through Scripture, we find no one that fulfills the law of God. And yet, when it gets to Jesus, what you see is someone who not only fills it, but overfills it. And it spills out everywhere because He does everything that the law requires and more. He's not just looking at the floor, the bare minimum that He needs to get by, He's not just looking at the C to pass the class, He's looking for beyond A plus and extra credit. This is what it means to fulfill. Law of God. That's why Jesus, as the authoritative interpreter in this moment, could see this man's hypocrisy because he fundamentally understood what the law of God was. He thought it was just something on the floor to jump over, not something to guide us into who we should be. Do you believe that God's laws were rooted in his love for you? to guide you into who you should be and to what humanity should really be. Because I would bet that most of us operate believing that God's law means don't do these things so that God will be happy with us and give us our deepest requests. But God's law says do this because I have already loved you. And this is what it means to be human. Anything less than that, you're deceiving yourself. Do we really think that these sorts of things are what's best for us? Forgiving our spouse, even when they haven't asked for forgiveness. What about taking a day off and working less? What about refraining from gossip and envy? What about putting down Instagram because all it does is stir up a comparison game in our own hearts? What about giving money away? Selling stuff so that we can give more of our stuff to others? What about showing up to worship on a Sunday morning? What about sacrificing your Netflix and binge night for a small group so that you might be encouraged or encourage a brother and sister in Christ? What about your sexuality? Conforming your desires to what God says is good, not just what does no harm? What about purposefully choosing not to advance into some position in your career that will make you less available for your family, your church, and others? What about choosing to live a simpler life instead of hacking your life to that next side gig? What about caring for your neighbors? What about losing arguments? What about praying for your political leaders in good faith? Do we really believe that these things are what is best for us? what we were made for and what makes us truly human? The answer is no. (laughs) That's why we sin. Uh, That's why we confess our sins. That is not actually who we are. We reveal our own hypocrisy by failing uh, to live to what we say is good. People who say that they're Christians say that, that something is good for us to attain to, and yet we live a different life. The leader of the synagogue showed his hypocrisy and his treatment of the law of God as as simply a hurdle to jump over in order to please God. And in this fundamental misunderstanding of the law of God, God, he's actually going to fundamentally misunderstand the kingdom of God. See, these are um, intimately connected. Uh, If you have laws, there's some sort of kingdom where those laws operate and are effective, right? Uh, And so his misunderstanding here is going to have grave consequences for over here. And this is our second point. Because this religious leader thought that the law was simply a restrictive standard to measure himself and others by, he assumed that the kingdom was marked by people who had merited entrance. People who had jumped over the right hurdles. People who had borne their burdens for long enough that Jesus finally says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's why this religious leader so passionately defended the Sabbath. Like if we give him the best reading, you know, like a charitable interpretation of what he's saying, he wanted himself and others to respect the Sabbath. Because that was the way that they were going to experience closeness with God. In some sense, they were going to merit their entrance into relationship with God. And by breaking the Sabbath, it would actually take them further away from God. And in some sense, he would be right. Uh, Breaking the law of God and having this dissonance between what we say and what we do uh, creates this hypocrisy uh, that does separate us from closeness to God. And so we repent of our sins. And the question is, what happens between here and here? Do we have to earn it all back? Do we have to pay for it all? See, here's the deal with the Old Testament Sabbath and why he was so passionate about it. The Old Testament people of God, they worshiped together on Saturday, the last day of the week, and they were supposed to rest from their work on this day. It was a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, which was marked by eternal rest. Not because God doesn't like rest. Uh, God worked six days and then rested the seventh, and it appears that in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll actually have work to do. It just won't be cursed. You see, the problem was not so much that Adam and Eve worked. It was the problem that God cursed their work after they rebelled against him. Because of this curse, we have this overwhelming call and desire uh, to try to find our meaning in lives, not only through our occupations, but we believe that we can earn it. We believe that we could just fight hard enough and carry enough burdens in order to end up at the, at the gates of heaven and be, able, and be able to say, see, I did it. God gave the Israelites Sabbath rest in order to experience a foretaste of the heavenly rest a fulfilling of what is, come, what is to come in the new kingdom, from resting from all their toil and enjoying uh, the liberation that Jesus had provided them. You see, we can see this in, uh, in Egypt. So they get the 10 Commandments, right? Where you have that, uh, the commandment to, to honor, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? And they get those 10 Commandments right after they have left Egypt. Uh, you guys remember this story? Uh, There's Moses that says, let my people go, and Naughty Pharaoh says, no, no, no. Then there's like all these plagues, and they get taken out, and they walk through, you know. You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys have all heard this story? Uh, So they leave that. They've been liberated from slavery, and God says, I didn't take you out of slavery to the Egyptians uh, because you were so great. You're actually like puny and kind of meaningless. Egyptians would have been a way better option if I wanted to like conquer the world. You guys have almost nothing, you know. No, I chose you because I made promises to you. I'm keeping those promises. I have liberated you from other imposed work, the imposed work of the Egyptians. And I'm taking you to a land where you will have self imposed work. You have experienced freedom, but this freedom is not for you to work yourself to death. Your freedom is to reorient your work inside of my kingdom values. And so you will not work one day a week. Experience the liberation that you can't work your way to me. I must liberate you. This religious leader in our story today desired people to experience this liberation from their back-breaking labors on the Sabbath. And he was partially right. That's what the Sabbath was for. But he was indignant when the woman before him was given relief from her back-breaking labor. And he failed to see that that is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. And he failed to see the Sabbath liberation right in front of him. His hypocrisy was evident for all to see because he believed that the kingdom of God could be merited. And he didn't want to believe that it could be given. If you believe that the kingdom of God is merited, you will miss the inbreaking of the kingdom here and now. Galatians 5 says it like this, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free and it commands us again not to take the yoke of slavery back upon ourselves. A yoke is those things that you tie around animals that helps pull the um, plow behind them, you know? Um, So don't attach this yoke again. Uh, The irony of the synagogue leader was that he wanted himself and his neighbors to experience liberation from some sort of slavery, but that he believed that it was achieved by attaching a yoke to his neck and pulling a plow through the ground. And so he put this yoke of slavery back upon himself of a law that he could never keep. For the synagogue leader of the kingdom of rest was earned, not freely given. You see, merit would mean that he would have something to boast about. Given would mean that he had nothing to offer. He could only receive. Merit would mean that he could have some pride. Given would mean that he would have to acknowledge that he was just as bent down as this woman across the room uh, who was physically enslaved by Satan. He's just as bent down with the yoke of his own slavery to a law that he doesn't understand. He needed deliverance just as desperately. One surefire way to identify a religious hypocrisy is to listen to how we speak about how others are bound by their sin or experienced liberation. I'm not saying we should shy away from the sins of our own culture or our families or our churches, but there is a humility that must happen when you point out the speck in a brother's eye while you have a plank sticking out of your own. Anyone who has been a Christian for any amount of time has done this. We experience God's good, free gift of liberation when we become a Christian, and then we turn around and try to perfect ourselves by our own merit. And I see this most often in my frustrations, or I can see this sometimes in my frustrations with other people's sins, but often where I see this most often is my own anxiety concerning my own faith. Have I done enough? Do I believe the right things? Have you ever felt the gnawing fear that you haven't done enough to please God, to merit entrance into his kingdom? Do you ever feel that your faith waffles and equivocates, and you wonder whether it's all real after all? And you have that deep-seated anxiety that when the sky rolls back and judgment day comes, somehow the judgment will be you didn't have enough faith? I think a lot of times we actually believe that entrance into God's kingdom is merited and that we pay for it with faith dollars. So we're trying to earn as many faith dollars as we can here now to buy our way in. Brothers and sisters, we are hypocrites, all of us, myself included. We do not live out God's law because we fail to see how it's good for us. And all of us, whether directed towards the speck in our brother's eye or to our our own gnawing anxiety, we all look at the insufficiency of our faith, and we tend to see it as God's kingdom as something that is merited and paid for. But although this room is full of hypocrites, I believe that Christianity itself is not hypocritical because it actually tells a different story. Now, I've heard it described this way. I'm not sure who first used this example, um, but I'm going to run with it. Uh, We are all POWs. We're all prisoners of war. Our parents had been, our grandparents and grandpa- great-grandparents, all the way back to the dawn of time. We are all locked in a prison camp, and we have been here for so long that we have made our peace with it. And in fact, it's the only thing we have ever known. It, there's a normalcy to it. And occasionally, we experience the despair when one of our fellow prisoners die, and we go, wait a second, this, something's like not right here. And then we move past it and bury it, and we continue to live under the rules and reign of the prisoner of war camp trying to find little ways where we can gain advantages over each other to be able to rule over each other to be able to have some sort of badge of honor that we could wear to see to say see i've done it and the analogy goes like this a voice comes over the loudspeaker and says attention prisoners you have been liberated you're free Now the question is, in that moment, do you believe that freedom could be better? Do you listen to that voice and respond? And as the gates roll open, you know, the buzzer sounds and all the prison doors open and the gates are opened, do you say, actually, my prison walls make more sense to me? I like this rule in this reign. I know how to operate here. And I believe that if I operate here well enough, someday I'll get free. There's this collective story that we tell each other. That if we're just a good enough person, somehow we're gonna get out of this prisoner of war camp. A cosmic battle was won with Jesus' death and resurrection, where liberation is announced through the ages in his word. And it says, a new kingdom has arrived. And it promises liberation from this back-breaking work and labor of carrying our sin and trying to earn it. And it has been done for you on your behalf because you could do none of it. Do we still want to try to merit our escape? Or will we rest in the fact that someone else has done it and walk free? If we stay put and play by the same rules of our prisoner of war camp, these rules that we have designed that we'd be able to merit and earn our way out of the system and somehow uh, merit eternal life will fail us every single time. We needed Jesus to come. Not just achieve the floor of the law, but overflow the law so that it spills out everywhere. And for him to establish a new kingdom where we will be called out of our prison camps and live underneath his rule under no merit of our own, but believing that he has done it all. If we do this, we can live a life of integrity instead of hypocrisy because we we don't claim that we understand the law perfectly, but we claim that we understand that someone did the law on our behalf. And what we are learning is to follow him as he interprets that law for us of what it means day to day here. So we come back every week and we confess that we're sinners. We confess that someone else has achieved it for us. And we're also not claiming that we um, completed this law and and merited the kingdom, but that the kingdom is a free gift to all who believe in the one who earned it. If you misunderstand God's law and you use it by a standard to which you merit entrance into the kingdom, you will inevitably, inevitably be a hypocrite. And you will inevitably be put to shame. See, in this passage, it is clear uh, that Jesus invites those who have been humbled. Uh, This woman whose back's bent over it, it's clear that she is weighed down with something that binds her. She knows that she has no hope. Someone else must liberate her from this. There's nothing that she can do to cure her condition. And for those of you that know that that is where you are, where you are worn down by the world, run over by it, you know that there is no hope for you. Jesus comes, calls you close, and says, be healed. But you know what? For those of us who, in our pride and arrogance, are trying to find rest in our hypocritical piety, our obedience to the law that we don't live, our desire for a kingdom that is more of our own making than it is of his, even you he's inviting in. You know, it says that the religious leaders, all of his adversaries, were shamed. And it seems to me uh, that the only time that Jesus shames people are those who are trying to um, twist his words to fit their own uh, hypocritical piety. But even then, even then to this religious leader, Jesus extends an invitation. You know, throughout the New Testament, we sometimes pass over it. You know, we use kind of the straw men of these uh, Pharisees. But there are many Pharisees who turn to Jesus, there are many religious leaders who having lived a life of burdened by hypocritical piety see the freedom that Christ provides and cast aside the yoke on the foot of the cross. And although we don't get the resolution or even this guy's name, who's this uh, synagogue leader, maybe even him, shamed by Jesus uh, when, he, when light is shown on the fact that he's a religious ringleader in a prisoner of war camp trying to keep people in the camp, Even when faced by the one who did the liberation, who entered the camp itself and said, I am he, I am here to liberate you, believe in me. Maybe even then in that moment of shame and embarrassment, remembering, uh, seeing who he is in full light, maybe even then he turned to Jesus and said, your reign is good. I want to subject my life to it. And the question for us today is, will we hear the call of this king? And leave behind our hypocritical religious piety. And will we accept the free gift of salvation? Will we be agents of his kingdom by his power here and now? Will we hear his invitation and bring our life under subjection of his rule? Learning from him what the law means and why it's good for us? Will we leave the prison yard of our own sins and proclaim the good news of a kingdom that is freely available to all whose backs are bent low with the burden of life, whether bent low from the oppression of the world or Satan or bent low by striving under their own hypocritical piety to accept the liberating freedom found in Christ Jesus? Will you hear this call today and respond? Or will you stay right where you are Uh, Jesus intended us not only to hear this call, this proclamation of a new kingdom, but he intended for us to taste it upon our lips. It was not simply enough, he knew, uh, to to hear the words uh, over the loudspeakers. Uh, He wanted us to be able to taste it upon our lips. In some sense, this declaration is made, but we are still in the prison yard, you know. Uh, We can't leave it. It's all of creation, Um, we're waiting for the day when Jesus brings his new kingdom and tears down every rampart of the enemy, every rampart of the old ways and establishes his new kingdom in all of its glory. And until that day, he intended to give us promises, these proclamations of his word preached, but also these proclamations of his word tasted, that a broken body and spilled blood was sufficient for you. Your hypocritical piety will bring nothing to this table. Eat, drink, and remember that Christ is sufficient. The sacrament was instituted by Christ the night that he was betrayed. He took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I ministering his name. Now turn and give it to you. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant, poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Come, take, and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're convinced that Christ is not hypocritical, that he lived the life that he said he did, that he died for your sins and he rose again, come and partake of this promise. Taste it upon your lips. If this is not true, I'd ask you to refrain uh, from this section of our service and, and not have a hypocritical action where you declare something with your outward actions that's not an inward reality. I'd love to answer any questions that you have about it. We try to do this every week and I'd love to invite you another time. But if you're not sure that Jesus is who he says he is, I'd ask you to refrain from that, that kind of hypocrisy. In a moment, I will pray. And then you can come down the center aisle and we've got a serving station uh, on my right, my left over here, there are gluten-free options for those who require, please notify your server. Uh, And there's um, red wine and clear grape juice, please take according to your conscience. Uh, If you would, please stand with me while I pray really quick and then we're gonna do our refrain. I'm changing it up on you guys, you gotta pay attention. You know, you can't just get into the regular rhythm roll. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would transform these common elements to serve their supernatural purpose, that your word is already declared to our hearts, that Jesus is sufficient. Allow this food and drink to declare liberation to our bodies, to remind us that although our bodies may fail, there comes a day where the one who had not failed said that he will resurrect us from broken body and spilled blood and that he did it by his own broken body and spilled blood. Remind us of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.